Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Do you ever wonder why some businesses seem to effortlessly provide an exceptional customer experience while others can't seem to get it right no matter how hard they try? My answer is because they're not doing CX right. And today's episode, I'm bringing you a guest who will help you understand what best-in-class versus mediocre companies are doing differently. Victoria is a fearless woman leader, a corporate executive who is known for being the turnaround queen in the industry. We talk about how to create a customer service culture that is unstoppable and practical strategies on how to get your team to focus on what matters most to stakeholders, employees, shareholders, customers, and humans. Humans doing what's right for humans. We dive into doing the right thing without excuses and ways to engage workers, especially call center agents who are so important to every business. You'll also hear stories that reinforce the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in customer experience and future predictions. I believe that after listening to this episode, you'll push more boundaries, create more value for others, and get the basics right for business and personal growth. Please share this episode with others that can benefit and subscribe to my channel as I'd love for you to do CX right, learn the skills and connect with me as I'm happy to help you one-on-one. Now let's get on with the show. Hello, Victoria. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Hey, Stacey. Great to be here. I am honored to have you and excited to dig into your stories because as you said, you're an open book. I am too. No reason not to share and learn. And so we're going to dive into those experiences. But before we do, please share, who are you? What do you do for a living? I like to describe myself as a multi-potentialite, given that I have many diverse interests. But uh, I am a career-long B2B executive uh, and familiar with a variety of industries. I've spent my time in management consulting, technology, and outsourcing. I'm also a board director, an author, a public speaker, a fitness fanatic, mom, foodie, spouse. Mm, A lot of hats. (laughs) That's right. I know those hats very well. What makes you... Want, so passionate about the things that you're talking about and speaking and writing about? A majority of those are because they're personal to me, things I'm passionate about that I believe fundamentally from an a values and integrity standpoint. And long ago, I shifted my focus around my brand and how I was known from what I did from a work perspective to much more around the impact and the legacy I would want to leave. Hmm, that's beautifully said. You said to me, there's so much you've shared in the world about your past and who you are. And so there's probably so many fun facts, maybe some not so fun. But with that said, what what stands out? What do people say wow about you from your stories? 
They'll say, wow, when they hear sort of my origin story, which I started sharing a bit more openly. So people understood my why, right? Thinking of Simon mm-hmm. Sinek, start with why. Yes. Uh, just understanding what drives me, what motivates me. So that tends to be a big wow for people when they understand that. But then also the, you know, the really fun, you know, parts of me. There's, you know, I built and bought businesses, some of which that have been a personal passion of mine, like making homemade soap that somehow took off to the fact that I started playing hockey in my 20s, not shocking that I'm originally from Canada, uh, and then <laughs> continued to you know play that up until uh, I moved to Florida a couple of years ago. There's not so many ice rinks down here. Mm. I love that there's so much diversity because you don't know what you're going to love and you don't know what's going to stick unless you try. Exactly, exactly. So now let's get into the core of the show. It's called the Doing CX Right Show, Customer Experience. What does customer experience mean to you? Well, it's multifaceted for sure. And it's not just, you know, the survey that comes at the end of a what kind of interaction we have, whether that be by phone, you know, in a retail store, online, et cetera. So that I, I think that's much like the way I think about the brand holistically of organizations or even as we as humans, what do we have? That's the reputation and the experience in the mind of you know those who are in- engaging with us, whether it's engaging with a brand, engaging with a human that's delivering products or services. Mm-hmm. And that's an extension of even go way up front around the employee experience of the organization that's providing it. So again, that's things like alignment to purpose and the vision, mission, values of organizations. What do they stand for? How does that align from an individual perspective to could be the digital experience? Not one single company can say they're not a technology company. You know, even if you're manufacturing, you know, shoes or clothing for someone, the reality is we're using technology to enable their experience, the employees who deliver for them, the supply chain, et cetera. So it's that all the way through to how someone recovers when someone messes up. And the reality is we do, again, whether it's a supply chain issue or something's gone wrong in billing or the customer service person just had an off day. How do you recover from that? It's all of those facets and much more, quite frankly, in the mind of the customer um, mm-hmm. that you know evolves into the one question we always you know ask in these survey scores, you know, would you recommend or promote? And so it's, it's all of those things. And so I don't think there's this one minute Thing that we can focus on when we look at experience. I want to add on to what you said about we are human. We make mistakes. Companies are made up of humans. And so why it's so important about doing customer experience, right, is that when those mistakes happen, people are more forgiving. Exactly. And, and you know what? I actually think I personally have stronger loyalty to companies and people who've made it right, you know, when there was an error. I actually think of some of my closest friends are owners of a restaurant who messed up completely on the first time my husband and I went there for a visit. But the way they recovered, that that caused us to have an incredible experience and want to go back. And so we made that like our regular Saturday haunt and we're now, you know, very good friends and went to their wedding last year. That's a great example. And that doesn't have to be just a small restaurant. That could be big brands that replicate that. Exactly. And so that's where I think, you know, the, you know, that it's great. And I understand large organizations and most of my career has been working for Fortune 500. And so there's 
policies and procedures that the team members need to follow. And I've also usually led operations and the contact center teams who have scripts and again, policies or procedures, but giving them the flexibility to react in a very human way to the customer on the other end of the line and their experience to make it right. Because sometimes it's not, it's not mm-hmm. money. It's not that like, it's not just the refund. It's the apology. It's the explanation. It's those things that are much more meaningful to many, many customers. Mm, I love how you're talking about recover because nobody, no company is going to do it right all the time. (laughs) Now you speak about do the right thing. And in my mind, that's get the basics right. Why is that so hard? This, This sounds so mundane. It, it, it does. And you're right. So, you know, you talk about doing this right. I do always say like, we need to do the right thing. And it's it's challenging. But one of the reasons I think it's the most difficult is many organizations do themselves a disservice in creating these short-term goals or objectives, incentives, performance measures that drive people's compensation, that Mm -hmm. often drives really poor behavior. Uh, And and also very short-term thinking versus the long-term. So again, short-term, you make a snap decision about one customer. Maybe you don't understand you know, the loyalty in terms of their spend with that organization, you know, or when I think of, I spent a lot of my career in B2B, again, understanding that one person and their connectedness from a a business buying decision. If there's a, you know, there's a book, The Challenger Customer, and they looked at, you know, B2B decision-making. And this is a number of years ago, so I'm sure the numbers increased. 5.4 decision-makers for every, you know, business-to-business, you know, transaction contract that's made. I'm sure that's amplified. And so it's understanding those things and those dynamics and focus much more on the long game. So I think those are some of the reasons that it's so difficult uh, to do it right. Well, the other thing is, I spoke recently on a different show about silos. And so when you have those silos and different goals, there's no way you can do it right. No, you're absolutely right. You need to look at it end to end. I think of you know experience I had at one organization. I you know won't say who it was, but mm-hmm. I mean they you know I had accountability for like you know how do we in this case shift on time to customers and the viewpoint of a warehouse was if it left the warehouse on time from their end if it left the day the customer said they wanted it it's on time. Well, like well what about the two to four or six weeks it takes to get to their warehouse or get into their stores, right? So it's how do we look at it in a much more holistic matter uh, manner end-to-end user experience and not just, as you said, the silo of one one finite group um, metric. Yeah. I also, you brought up time, which makes me think about my experience. CX with, was within new product development when I was at Verizon. And I remember we would work with the product teams and they had a deadline, go to market launch. And... Here comes people like me saying, no, 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 can't let the clock dictate when this launches. We have to get enough customer feedback and all those right methodologies. And so time, it's interesting, the perspective of time. And and that's how silos happen because everyone has different goals and I've got to launch, but we're like, no, you got to do it right. (laughs) Agreed. And one of the reasons I see large scale transformation 
go poorly is in large part because of the change management and some of some of your time of product launches. But again, that that's managing a pro, you know a project in this case a product launch. But whether it's like a digital transformation, you're changing an org structure, whatever. Not again having that sort of raising up for a second and looking at you know from a macro perspective how it is all connected yeah. um, and building that into as you said the time time dy- dynamic. Let's go deeper into change management. So you've described yourself as born to lead and not be led. Mm. And can you first elaborate what that means? And I'm guessing that that is really what has enabled you to drive change. Tell me more. Yeah, so I am far, far, Stacey, from being anyone who's comfortable with the status quo. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm likely to break things just to fix it. So um, I will challenge that. I hate going into a situation where someone says, well, this is the way it's been done, or we've been doing it since however long. Great. At, you know, time has changed. Our customers have changed. Processes, technology, everything's changed. So let's look at doing it from a very different perspective. So that's a big part of what I mean around that. And then the next part around just leading is I've been through a significant amount of of change and transformation, not only on behalf of the clients that um, I've had the opportunity to work with, but even within the organizations I've worked for, 18 mergers and acquisitions. And the most effective way for me to get the team on board is to make them feel like they're part of that process. So to Mm -hmm. your point, you're collecting feedback from customers. Well, in many cases, I'm collecting feedback from employees going through reorganizations, you know, through some of these mergers, et cetera. So there's a lot of time spent in gathering input, feedback, understanding the institutional knowledge so that by the time, you know, decisions are made, the entire team feels like they've been a part of it and they're on the proverbial bus as we move forward towards whatever new destination, change or transformation we've we've put in front of them. Mm. Now, you and I both share in common I want to say a love, a passion, a commitment. I'm not sure the right adjective around diversity, equity, inclusion, fairness, for lack of better word, to sum it up. As a woman who is leading and changing cultures and changing companies that are used to doing things the same way, how is a woman being a woman? affected you in being effect, being effective to drive change, being female? It, um, well, some of my passion and advocacy in the world of diversity and inclusion comes from my own lived experience. And so uh, my first executive role as chief operating officer came when I was only 24 years old, a new mother. Uh, I was the only woman, the youngest by probably a couple decades around the table and a member of the LGBT community. And so for me, feeling like I was the only, that's actually where a lot of it started. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also I managed teams and it was a large outsourcing environment, many of whom were diverse. They were new to the country. They were in between jobs, look at different socioeconomic status. So that's where it really comes from. I also recognize the value that it brought to our organization. I think a lot of companies think that it's a, I'm not going to say check in the box. It's probably, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, but they'll say they know it's the right thing to do. But they, I still think many companies recognize the cost associated with having a chief diversity officer, having, you know, policies and procedures and additional benefits and those kinds of things. But the reality is 
it's very good for the business from a top and bottom line perspective as well. Like people who feel like they belong in the those environments tend to innovate more and problem solve. They tend to be, because they're more highly engaged, they're more productive. So the reality is it's it's very good, you know, for business. As a woman, so I've experienced a multitude of times um, being by far the only woman in the room. Not just a few years ago, I was leading a large piece of strategy for one organization. It was me and 40 men in the room. In my 20s, I showed up with a mask, all business, all the time. I wasn't going to show you that I had emotions, that there was vulnerability because I didn't want anyone to question me in that room, in particular because I was a woman. So that's changed over time, but that was definitely something that came in part because I was a woman. Oh, I have so much to say to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me start with, I had worked for an engineering company. And not only was I trying to shift an engineering mindset to a customer-centric first company, and it took four years to really feel like an impact happened. It did. But with that said, when you think of engineering, and in, and there were technicians I worked with, they were all men and wearing hard hats and wearing you know, a lot of union guys. And they're so good at their craft, but there were no women. And while I was at the company, there was a woman who came into the business and I was fascinated by, she said that she couldn't wear a ponytail because the way the hat and the uniform as a technician was designed, not for a woman. And it opened my eyes to the fact of like, what's really happening and the need for change, just even clothing. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So it's, there is a lot of room for opportunity. Do you think, we both have uh, kids, growing kids, adulting. (laughs) Do, Do you think that it's going to be a lot different, a little different for them? I... Um, I think progress is being made, but progress is slow. Unfortunately, I think in our current times, progress is probably slipping back a little bit in certain parts of the world for sure. You know, I'm I, I, like, I'm happy to see that there's, you know, we, we hit double digits for female CEOs in the Fortune 500, but that's 53 of 500. There's only six black CEOs, right? Like that's, that's not representative of are the population. So that disheartens me, but it's still progress. When you look at the US, the you know, World Economic Forum said that gender parity from a pay perspective is still 60, 60 years out and better than other parts of the world where it's 120. So I think our children will continue to see the needle move. I hope it's going to be much more quickly than you and I have experienced. But to do that, I think we need to continue to advocate and raise our voices. And I think we need to be, I use the phrase all the time, strategically intentional. You know, be, be very mm. deliberate about how we're going to drive that change forward. And not just in terms of like hiring a diverse workforce. As you said, there's other, there's things, whether it's clothing, depending on the type of, you know, um, role that someone's in, whether it's creating the right kind of accommodations for someone that doesn't have the same abilities as others. Those are all the kinds of things we need to be, again, strategically intentional about when we think about diversity holistically. Mm. Well, we also, for people in CX roles, designing personas and journey maps 
you've got a segment for that, for diversity. <laughs> and not enough brands do that. No, no. I, I've started to see some more forward-thinking ones with this great sort of ecosystem as they look at diversity. And so that is certainly it's the workforce. Then it's like the vendors and partners that they're working with. And then it's looking at products and services and how do you ensure that they're equitable for all, as you said, personas and journey maps, et cetera, to make sure. Like, for example, I worked with a large financial services organization last year who wanted to make sure that their health and wealth products were accessible to the communities that they lived, worked, and served in, for example. And then, of course, much more broadly in the community and how you show up, you know, going back to that kind of purpose and values piece. Yeah. Let's go back to, again, change management, turnaround queen, as uh, former colleagues called you. Before I ask my question, what made them give you that name? What stuck? How did it stick? I'm often the person going back to not liking the status quo, comfortable with transformation. I'm usually sort of parachuted into roles to be um, helping improve distressed businesses or market units, one. And two, of all of those merger and acquisitions, because I'm usually leading the, the operations plus, that's where a majority of where the people sit. So lots of integration activities associated with that. And so there's been successful results you know, for my efforts in leading a lot of those. And so that's how I got the nickname. Mm, I love that. Now, let's talk about engagement, employee engagement. You talked about contact centers before. We know that that role as an agent, it's monotonous work with a distributed workforce, people at home. How do you recommend keeping people engaged? How do you shift the mindset so that they never give up? (laughs) It's hard. Well, so just the sheer recognition that that is a very challenging career. In fact, that's where my career started. I worked in a contact center while I was in university. Uh, and so I have a great appreciation for that. And my career rose through leadership ranks in contact center before I moved out to be an executive. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I love go ahead. that. Yeah, I love that because everybody should have either that experience or if listen, listen to the calls, really step into the shoes of an agent. But go on. So tell me more about that. So I think there's many things. So first of all, I early on had to recognize when I stepped into that first executive role was in an outsourced contact center environment. That is generally not a destination, right? It is either newcomers to the country or people who are in between jobs. So early on, I needed to find a way to keep them engaged and ideally keep them there as long as possible because turnover is high. And so there's... um, a lot that has to be done with that. As it just relates to how do you serve the customer. Mm-hmm. So earlier we were talking about you know, that that completely scripted approach. Just, I mean, it's, it is monotonous. It doesn't allow for the flexibility to even build a rapport with customer that makes them feel like it's a conversation rather than a job in many, many cases. So creating parameters that aren't so narrow and binding, you know, for mm-hmm. many of those agents, I think is critically important around being clear around how success is measured. Going back to my earlier comment around incentives, it can drive certain behaviors. I can't tell you how many times agents drop calls 
quickly after picking up to reduce the, their average handle time in the contact centers. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, about measuring, again, very different things. And also showing a career path. And even that's still in the contact center, that is, you know, giving them education and new skills to ensure that they stay relevant for how the business and, you know, the, the market is moving. You said a lot there to unpack. <laughs> and, and I had worked for a BPO uh, outsource solution. So I know I'm speaking your language. It is a hard role. It is an important role. I remember I was hanging out with salespeople and the agents in one room. And I was fascinated how the salespeople who go out, go solicit business, they never thought about how when I said frontline and I was talking about the customer service agents and reps, the salespeople were like, no, we're the frontline. And I'm like, you know, you're not the only frontline. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and I saw the light bulbs go off because that's the truth that they own the customer experience, those agents just as much as anybody else who's in person or at a retail store or... Yeah, they need to get elevated and appreciated more. Oh, for sure. And the earlier conversation around include looking a little bit more holistically when we think about time. I can't tell you. I work the my my career, as I said, started contact center in a bank, and I can't tell you how many times the team would be surprised because marketing had launched something, whether it was advertisement or a new product or service. And they, it hadn't been communicated or certainly not in enough time to get down to thousands and thousands of contact center agents. Like that's just one way to be thinking about it, as you said, around frontline. And breaking silos, because if the marketing is doing one thing and then the caller says, hi, I want that promotion. And the rep is like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's terrible. And it's real. It happens. (laughs) (laughs) All the time. All the time. Yes. Oh, you're hitting a chord. I know it well. Well, as we're getting to the end here, I'm going to ask you a couple final questions. So leadership. What is the best leadership advice throughout your career that you've received or given to others that stands out? Uh, It it was a lesson I had to learn for myself as I shared sort of what I thought um, I needed to do or be, particularly as a woman in business. I realized I actually had, you know, the, an, another nickname that's not as um, great as the turnaround queen, and that was at one point the Iron Maiden. And it's, I showed up all business all the time. I would w- walk into the boardroom and like launch right into our agenda for the day. I needed to learn that it was okay, and this mm-hmm. is for men and women, that it was okay to be vulnerable, to show emotion. And really importantly, build build true and trusted connection with people. And so I will tell you, Stacey, it wasn't like I'd I'd learn. I became my first um, manager job as I was the assistant manager of the shoe store I worked at at 14. You know, so by the time I was in like my mid to late 20s and I'd had a lot of time as a leader. So I had to undo some things. So I had to get really comfortable with things that didn't make me comfortable, which is talking more about myself taking a little bit of time to just engage and connect with people. So I would tell new leaders and ones who've been around for a very long time um, that authenticity and transparency is critical for building trusted relationships with our employees. 
And I would say to all the executives listening, make sure that you create a psychological safe environment to do that because it won't otherwise. Exactly. Speaking of leaders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, if they were in my room right now listening, what is the one takeaway you want them to remember? Oh, wow. One, only one, Stacey. That's a, that's a difficult question for me. I actually, pro- building off of our last question and topic around leadership, just how critical that is. I think the hustle hard days are over. You know, employees want more different, customers want more and different. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of that comes down to our roles as leaders around doing the right thing and focused mm-hmm. on long-term relationships and outcomes and, you know, setting the right incentive models and compensation for all across the organization mm-hmm. uh, to being really human heart centered leaders and recognizing there's paradox and, you know, um, that exists as, as I say that, but ultimately doing that drives the right kind of engagement performance from our teams, which then, you know, follow through to our customers. And I love that you said heart centered leaders, because I'm literally on a mission to bring the heart back to business. And your stories of learning how to bring your heart to business and that it being okay. And it's only going to get even more complicated as the robots merge with us. So (laughs) that's another episode, another day. Well, my favorite question to close this out. If you could go back in time to your 20-year-old self, based on what you know now that you didn't know then, what would you tell younger Victoria? I would tell her that being my authentic self is actually much more powerful and would bring me the kind of success. And I'm not talking financial success to me is measured. I talked about is an impact uh, um, and this legacy that I want to lead that it would fill me with much more joy by sharing so much more openly and being authentic than my 20 something year old fearful self. And you said before, we're unlearning things. Always, always. We need to pivot. I think you lean into the things that make you uncomfortable because otherwise the growth will not come. Yes, so we get to do it better now forward. Love that. Well, thank you for being here. And I'm going to include your website, your social channels, all of your wonderful resources in the show notes. So thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple, it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right.